Galatians 1, 18 through 24. Paul writes, Then three three years later, I I went up to Jerusalem to become acquainted with Cephas and stayed with him 15 days, but I did not see any other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. Now, in what I am writing to you, I assure you before God that I am not lying. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown by sight to the churches of Judea, which are in Christ. But only they kept hearing, he who once persecuted us is now proclaiming the good news of the faith which he once tried to destroy. And they were glorifying God because of me. One of the things I I hate about a commitment to expository preaching is when you're forced to preach a passage like this one. And one of the things I love about a commitment to expository preaching is when you're forced to preach a passage like this one. If it were my custom to choose different passages to preach on each Sunday after Sunday, this set of verses before us this morning would be the very last passage I would choose. And if I did that for the rest of my life, I would, you would never be taught these verses. And, and what a tragic shame that would be because every passage in Scripture is expressly intended to grow our faith including this one before us. To skip these verses because on the surface they don't seem practical enough would be to miss out on the unique contribution these verses make to our sanctification. What does God want from us through these verses? Let me say it this way. He he wants us to trust from this passage before us this morning, God wants us to trust in the truthfulness of the gospel of grace more than we do by helping us trust in all of the New Testament. And I'll explain, uh, unpack more of what that means in, in a few moments. In today's passage of Scripture, we're going to consider how Paul's independence from Jerusalem's God, uh, apostles helps us trust in the New Testament more and subsequently in the gospel more, and how a deeper faith in the gospel then changes our lives. In 18, uh, verses 18 through 24, Paul continues to defend his thesis statement of this larger section in verses 11 and 12 of chapter 1, that his gospel came directly from a revelation of Jesus Christ. He didn't receive a second-hand gospel from the apostles in Jerusalem, only to then modify that gospel by taking out the requirements of the law. This was the charge the the Judaizers, these false teachers, were making, were bringing against Paul. Why was Paul preaching a works-free, law-absent gospel? The the, the false teachers said because he was a man-pleaser. He wanted to avoid the animosity the Gentiles would naturally feel about Judaism and circumcision and all these kosher uh, dietary laws. And so Paul, he wanted to cruise through his ministry, they said. He didn't want any unnecessary trouble from the Gentiles. And so Paul began chapter 1 pronouncing a curse on those who are actually the ones who were distorting the gospel. In verse 10, Paul asked, how am I a man pleaser when I just pronounce an anathema on these false teachers. He says in verse 11, again, his gospel is not a human gospel. In verse 12, it was given to him by a revelation of Jesus Christ on the Damascus road. And then in verses 13 through 16, Paul summarized that Damascus road experience in order to prove that his gospel came directly from Jesus Christ. There is no better explanation that explains why a Pharisee who was so committed to the law and zealous for Judaism, there's no better explanation that he would preach a gospel without the law and void of Judaism than the explanation of a Damascus Road experience with Jesus. 
the Jerusalem apostles obviously didn't choose Paul to be an apostle. He was the last person they would choose to go to the Gentiles. In chapter 9, if you remember, Paul receives his commission to be an apostle to the Gentiles. And it's only in Acts chapter 11 when the apostles in Jerusalem finally figure out that the gospel needs to go to the Gentiles. What does God want from us in these verses? He wants us to deepen our faith in the gospel. And God makes the argument He does in these verses because He knows one of the reasons we we kind of struggle with faith in this gospel of justification is because sometimes we don't trust Paul's words in the epistles as much as we do Jesus' words in the Gospels. Last week I stumbled upon this tweet by Beth Moore, written several years ago. She may have changed her view on this. And in case you didn't know, Beth Moore is a nationally acclaimed Christian speaker and writer, very well known in Southern Baptist circles. And this is what she tweeted. She was responding to something she tweeted before that seemed to uh, indicate this denigration of the Apostle Paul And she said, no, I was not subtweeting the apostle, but I'd like to say something here. I believe wholeheartedly all scripture is inspired by God. Authoritative, period. Truth, period. But the person themselves, Paul and Jesus, are not equals. End quote. Now, I'm not trying to pick on Beth Moore. I I literally stumbled upon this quote this past week, and I thought it... It fit well with the passage we're studying today. The second reason I'm not picking on Beth Moore is because whether she means something else or not, in our weak moments, we are all kind of, we can be suspicious of, suspicious of Paul, can't we? In the back of our minds, we can sometimes think, you know, Jesus, he was full of love, and Paul was full of truth. Jesus was gentle, And Paul was kind of uh, ornery. Uh, Jesus was the unifier, and Paul was the divisive one. Jesus told stories, and Paul taught cold doctrine. And we mistakenly think the red letters in the Gospels have more weight than Paul's black print in the epistles. We can sometimes weigh them unequally. 2,000 years ago, you had those who wanted to minimize Paul's apostleship, his gospel, and his theology. And 2,000 years later, the story is the same. You have those from Beth Moore to N.T. Wright to even us, normal Bible-loving believers, minimizing Paul's apostleship, gospel, and theology. What would Paul say to all his modern-day haters in this day and age who suspect the black print of his words as somehow being less weighty than the red print of Jesus' words, Paul would say today what he wrote 2,000 years ago, Galatians 1.1, Paul, an apostle, not sent from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father. He would say in Galatians 11, verse 11 and 12, chapter 1, For I make known to your brothers that the gospel which I am proclaiming as good news is not according to man, For I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Paul would say, listen, you're angry with the wrong guy. If you're angry with me, you're just really angry with Jesus. Today in chapter 1, 18 through 24, Paul will continue to try to convince you that Jesus' words equal Paul's words in order to strengthen your faith in the entire New Testament and subsequently in the gospel of grace, producing in you a transformed life. Starting back in verse 17, faced with the accusation of subverting the apostolic message he received from Jerusalem, Paul composes what we call a negative travelogue in verses 18 through 24 in order to prove his apostolic and gospel independence. So he begins in verse 17 to show where he was not. He, 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 he was not in Jerusalem, 
where he was only briefly, in verse 18, for 15 days, whom he, whom he did not confer with, in verse 19, um, 10 of the 12 apostles, and whom he did not see, in verse 22, the churches of Judea. When Paul first met Jesus on the road to Damascus, immediately after, verse 17, he did not see the other apostles He did not go to Jerusalem. Instead, verse 17, Paul says, I went away to Arabia and and then to Damascus to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. Only three years later, verse 18, did he go to Jerusalem. And during that three-year interval, he was not waiting for further instruction from Jerusalem. Instead, he was proclaiming, full gospel of grace to the Gentiles in Arabia and Damascus, while the other apostles are trying to figure out, should the, apostles, should the gospel go to the Gentiles? Paul was already doing it. When Paul did go to Jerusalem, he spent some time, verse 18, becoming acquainted with Cephas. He was there for only 15 days, a very brief period. I stayed with him, verse 18, 15 days, just enough time to get to know Peter, but certainly not enough time to receive an entire New Testament theology as found in the 13 letters of Paul, not including Hebrews, if you think he wrote that, maybe 14. This visit is is likely, this visit that Paul talks about in verse 18 is likely recorded in Acts 9.26. Go there real quick, I want you to See how this all kind of links up together, how it all, the epistles link up with the, with the book of Acts. And Paul is converted on the road to Damascus in the beginning of chapter 9. Right after he, uh, he, he arrives in Damascus, he preaches the gospel. During this time, he goes to Arabia. He comes back. Acts doesn't mention that trip to Arabia. And then Paul says... In verse 26, and this is what Paul, the trip Paul is referring to in verse 17 of Galatians chapter 1, this 15-day journey, he says, in uh, Luke writes in Acts 9.26, and when he came to Jerusalem, he was trying to associate with the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he was a, a, a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles, Peter and James, and recounted to them how he had seen the Lord on the road, and that he had talked to him, and how at Damascus he had spoken out boldly in the name of Jesus. So he was with them, moving about freely in Jerusalem, speaking out boldly in the name of the Lord, and he was talking and arguing with the Hellenistic Jews, but they were attempting to put him to death. And so this two-week period, he's really doing further gospel ministry, He spends some time with Peter, some time with James. And if you see, if you notice in those verses, Paul did most of the talking. Again, 15 days might seem like a lot of time, but it's really not when it comes to a theological education. For example, I went to seminary for three years, and when I graduated, I knew 0.001% of what Paul knew as revealed in the 13 New Testament letters that he wrote. Now, I'm sure Peter and Paul, when they were together for those 15 days, they were talking about more something more weightier than the weather or how great the hummus was in Jerusalem. Yes, they talked a little bit, but Peter learned as much from Paul as Paul did from Peter. Even in 14, 14 years later, look what Paul says in uh, Galatians chapter 2 through 6. He met with more of the apostles. And again, he, he says, those who were of reputation contributed nothing to me. Where did Paul get all his theology then in his 13 New Testament letters? From Jesus. Jesus' words equal Paul's words. Then in verse 19, uh, Paul says in chapter 1 of Galatians, when he went to Jerusalem, he spent a a short time with Peter, and the only other apostle he met briefly with was James. Look at verse 19. I did not see any other I did not see any other of the apostles except James, the Lord's brother. Again, Paul wants to emphasize his independence. 
His independent gospel. His independent apostleship. You see, if I got saved and I wanted to start a ministry and I had very little theology and I needed a New Testament theology for my ministry, for, for my, for my uh, missionary efforts, I would have spent a lot more time with all of the apostles in Jerusalem. I would have surely spent time with John. I would have spent time with Matthew. I mean, they wrote a lot of the New Testament. And if I needed to spend time with all of the apostles, I would have needed many months, even years, to know what I needed to know. Well, Paul, some of you are still thinking, man, Paul, did you really meet Jesus on the road to Damascus? Look what he says in verse 20. <clears throat> now, in what I'm writing to you, I assure you before God that I, I am not lying. He takes a, a, an oath. The Romans viewed an oath as the final word in a trial. Paul is on trial for his credibility, for his gospel credibility, and he is saying, I am calling upon God who knows all things to acquit me of my innocence, of my credibility, of my authenticity. Then in verse 21, Paul says he went a, a long way, verses 21, then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and for the next 14 years, um, I, I, I spent doing, I spent that time doing ministry. Acts 9 says that he went to Tarsus, and Tarsus is in Cilicia. He spent time um, in, in, in Syria before Paul looks for him in Acts 11. Go back to, I just want to show you how that kind of accords. Go back to Acts 9.30, and that kind of accords with what Paul is saying here in chapter 1 of Galatians. Acts 9.30, but when the brothers learned of, of, of the Hellenistic Jews wanting to put him to death, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him away, sent him away to Tarsus. And Tarsus, as they said, is in Cilicia. He's there about he's he's there in that area for about thirteen or fourteen years until in Acts eleven. Go to Acts eleven, uh, twenty five to twenty seven. Barnabas wants a ministry partner, and he he wants he he's looking for Saul or Paul. And eleven chapter eleven twenty five it says Barnabas left for Tarsus to search for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So. In that latter period of 14 years, Paul then went with Barnabas to do ministry together. Then Paul says this in Galatians 1.22, And I was still unknown by sight to the churches of Judea, which are in Christ. He was not personally known by the churches of Judea. He was just known of from outside reports. And, and the churches of Judea covered the area that included Jerusalem and possibly Samaria and, Gal and Galilee. And so why does Paul say this in verse 22? Well, the apostolic doctrine was centered in and around Judea. Right? That's where all the original apostles of Jesus were. If you wanted to learn apostolic doctrine, where would you go? You would go to the churches of Judea. That, that's where the influence of the apostles were most concentrated. But Paul says, for 14 years, I felt no need to go there. I felt no need to go to the headquarters, to the capital of New Testament doctrine. He had all the apostolic doctrine he needed from the Lord Jesus himself. Jesus' words equals Paul, Paul's words. He says in verse 22, Listen, my teaching is authentic, Jesus material. There is no dilution. There's nothing that I missed because there were too many people in the way from the source to where the message eventually ended up with me. And think about it. If you're a false teacher, if you're a false teacher and you want to attack Paul, it is a much easier argument to make to say that the reason Paul got his message wrong was because he went to the apostles who first got it right from Jesus, but when it transmitted from Jesus to the apostles to Paul, he, he messed it up. He tampered with it. He forgot some parts. And Paul is saying, no, no, no. There was no uh, this kind of chain, of chain of transmission where I somehow got the message wrong. I got it straight from Jesus' mouth. 
See, that's a harder uh, target. That's a harder uh, argument to make to say that, uh, yeah, Jesus gave it to Paul and then Paul totally messed it up. And it's, it's hard to believe. And it's harder to believe because Paul was such an amazing Christian. Look at verses 23 and 24. I didn't know the churches of Judea personally, but they, they did know of me. And this is what they were saying. He who once persecuted us is now proclaiming the good news of the faith which he once tried to destroy, and they were glorifying God because of me. The Judean churches added nothing to Paul's apostleship and his gospel, but on the other hand, they fully affirmed his apostleship and gospel because of the great change that took place in Paul's life. This former persecutor who tried to crush the gospel and the church is now proclaiming the same gospel on behalf of the church. The Judean church didn't directly add to Paul's ministry, but they were witnesses of the transformation that occurred in Paul. They never doubted his conversion and his apostolic ministry and his message uh, because of Paul's integrity. They didn't question his Damascus Road experience because the legitimacy of his ministry was tied to his integrity and to his godliness. Yes, the power of the gospel is located in the message itself and not in ourselves. We are ultimately fallible vessels the Lord uses, but the power of our witness for Christ cannot be separated from our godliness. Paul's ministry was powerful because the transforming grace of God was so evident in his life. And what Paul is doing in these last two verses of chapter 1 is implying something. He's implying something to the Galatians. He's implying something to us. He's saying, this is what the gospel of grace did for me. It transformed me. It changed me. It corroborates my calling. So what happened to you? Why isn't the same gospel changing you? Why are you in the midst of losing this gospel of grace for a gospel of works? The reason is, is because you doubt that it is true. The reason for this, 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 this gospel amnesia is because you doubt my words are Jesus' words. This is the point that Paul is making. Let me ask you a question. Is the gospel of grace transforming your life? Do you see that change? Because if you believe in it, it will change in you. If you grow in faith in the gospel, it will transform you. If you doubt it, if you fail to trust in it, if you think Paul's words are just a little bit less authoritative than Jesus' words, the gospel will fail to do for you all that it can. How does the gospel of justifying grace transform a person's life? Let me just give you four, four ways it transforms us. Number one, the gospel of grace produces an extravagant love for Christ. The gospel of grace uh, produces an, ex, an, an, an extravagant love for Christ. Go with me to Luke ch- chapter 7. Luke chapter 7. And here we, we, we realize something about the Lord Jesus. Yes, Jesus didn't teach justification with the same kind of technical language Paul did in Galatians and Romans, but you do see the doctrine of justification in principle throughout the Gospels. You see it especially here in the story found in verse 36 through 50. 50. There, here in these verses, Paul writes the account of Jesus spending time at a Pharisee's home for a meal. Verse 36. Now one of the Pharisees were asking him to eat with him, and he entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. He's having a meal with a Pharisee at his home, 
he's reclining at the table. Then, when, as he's doing this, a woman, verse 37, uh, there was a woman in the city, and she is described as a sinner, and this is probably because she's a prostitute, and when she learned that Jesus was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster jar of perfume. An alabaster jar of perfume is something you purchase, you would purchase in Egypt. It was very expensive. Some say 400 gold pieces. Uh, some say the cost of an alabaster jar of perfume equaled an entire year's wage for the average, average worker. And this is what she does in verse 38. Standing behind him at his feet, crying, she began to wet his feet with her tears. And she kept wiping them with the hair of her head. And normally, a a, a first century woman wouldn't do this. This would be shameful to do. She humbles humbles herself. She's kissing his feet. She took the alabaster jar of perfume, and she's anointing Jesus' feet with the perfume. I mean, this is extravagant, sacrificial love. The prostitute receives Jesus like the king that he is. Now compare the way she she received the Lord with how the Pharisee received Jesus. Verse 44. Jesus says to the Pharisee, Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears. And wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss at all. But she, since the time I came in, has not ceased to kiss my feet. Verse 46. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with perfume. The Pharisee treated Jesus like he was some regular Joe off the street. Why the difference? Why the difference? Because, verse 47, Jesus says, For this reason I say to you, her sins which are many have been forgiven, for she loved much, but he who is forgiven loves little. She loved Christ the way she did because she knew how much she had been forgiven. The Pharisee, on the other hand, he trusted in the law. The law was his righteousness. He depended on his good works. Now listen, Pharisees knew they were not perfect. No Pharisee thought, I am perfect, I am sinless. They just thought they were really good, who, who needed, they needed just a little bit of forgiveness from God. They did most of the work, and they needed a little bit of grace and mercy to finish the job. Jesus says to the woman in verse 48, Your sins have been forgiven. The verb here for forgiven is in the perfect tense, indicating that she had somehow been saved in the past, maybe from hearing the Lord speak in an earlier instance. So her worship of Jesus in this account written by Luke is the outpouring of love for him because she had received the overwhelming forgiveness of her sins. Now what saved this woman? How was this woman saved? Jesus says in verse 50, verse 50, he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. But listen to me. Even if Jesus didn't say these words, it is obvious what saved her. Because it couldn't have been the good deed she had done. She is a prostitute. Everybody knows this. There was no personal righteousness within herself she could have pointed to or have stood on. There was nothing in the law that she could have appealed to. She could have, she could, there was nowhere in the law where the law commended her. Even if Jesus doesn't say what he does in verse 50, it is obvious how she was saved. All she could do was believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. All she could do was receive the forgiveness of her sins by faith alone in the words of Christ. Let me ask you a question. 
What does your love for Christ look like? Does it look like, verse 38, as this woman anoints the feet of Jesus? Or does your love for Christ look like something in verses 44 through 46? Can people get the impression when they look at your life that you have a king that you love as much as this former prostitute loved Jesus? Or does your life look like the way the Pharisee treated the Lord? Indifferent, casual, common. And the answer to that question, my friends, is determined by how much you know you've been forgiven and how much you realize you do not deserve that forgiveness. And the only reason God has forgiven you is because of what Christ did for you on the cross. The Puritans would say there are two truths that you must believe in order to love Christ with this costly, extravagant love. You must know how great of a sinner you are, and you must know how great a Savior Jesus is. The Gospel produces an extravagant love for Christ. And number two... The gospel of grace gives forgiven sinners true peace. Look at the last words that Jesus says to the woman in verse 50. He says, your faith has saved you. And then Jesus says this, go in peace. Jesus' words here sound a, light like, sound a lot like Paul in Romans 5.1, where Paul writes, therefore having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. And the peace that Jesus and Paul are both referring to is the objective peace that we have with God who is no longer our enemy, but now our friend. Where once our sinfulness merited God's enmity and wrath, Jesus' blood has washed those sins away. His perfect righteousness has been imputed to us by faith. And now the Father accepts us on the basis of Christ's work on the cross and His righteousness alone that we receive through faith alone, not by works. And yet this objective peace produces within us a subjective psychological peace when our faith in the gospel of grace grows and deepens. What do some professing Christians do with the discomfort of their sin? How do some Christians manage the guilt of their sin? Let me, let me tell you some ways. Some Christians attempt to minimize their sin. And there are, there are different ways they do this. One way is to justify your sinfulness by blaming others. It is always the other person's fault when you're the one who sins. He made me do it. She made me do it. He started it. She started it. And I responded appropriately. What else was I supposed to do? I was helpless in the situation. And when you do that, you can never change because it's always the other person's fault. You see, when the anger you show to somebody else when you're blaming them for your sin, if you would take the same energy of that anger and direct it toward yourself, you'd be going somewhere. You'd be making some progress. A variation of this minimization is always, always looking at the sins of other people. Instead of looking at all the different ways you fall short against God and others, you look at all the ways other people struggle with their sin. This means you're probably often judging other people. You're constantly finding people worse than you to feel better about yourself. Well, at least I don't do that. At least I don't do this. And, and when people mess up badly, you, you kind of get a little bit happy and you go, well, I never did that. I must be so much better than this other person. Some Christians, there's another way Christians attempt, attempt to minimize their sin. And they do this by avoiding as much as possible the convicting power of God's Word. 
How can you avoid feeling the guilt of your sin? Never truly go to God's word and let his law convict your conscience. It's not that you're too busy to read God's word. No, you are intentionally busying yourself with other stuff in order not to feel the convicting power of Scripture against your conscience. And so you skim through your Bible during, during quiet time. You're always finding some reason to skip church or do something while the pastor is preaching. You let your mind wander during the sermon. You play critic during the sermon. Instead of feeding on God's Word, you treat it like you're a sermon critic for Christianity today. Listen, in heaven... God does not give out awards for best sermon of the year. He watches you to see what you do with this word. Sadly, there are some professing Christians who avoid the guilt of their sin and the discomfort that guilt, guilt brings to their soul by sinning more. By diving deeper into their sin. They try to wipe away the guilt of their sin by indulging in the pleasure of their sin. And for a brief time, the pleasure of new sin can cover the guilt of old sin. And the problem when you're in that, in that situation is the guilt of old sin tempts you to cover it with the pleasure of new sin. But that never lasts for long because sooner or later the guilt comes back with an even greater vengeance and now you're forced to repeat this spiraling circle downward into darkness and spiritual chaos. Brothers and sisters, this is truly the most foolish way to avoid the discomfort of your sin. Don't do that. Don't do the other things, but especially don't try to cover your sin with more sin. It doesn't get better when you add fuel to the fire. You think, well, the house is burning, might as well burn the whole house down. No, you can, you can, you can keep a lot of the rest of the house. Put out the fire in the living room. But there is a much better way to deal with with the guilt of our sinfulness. All the ways I've told you some Christians manage their sin, it just masks the problem. All you're doing is avoiding the issue instead of dealing with the issue. Why not let God take it all the way? Why not let God wash away your guilt like the washing machine that takes away the mud spots of your dirty laundry. When Jesus told the former prostitute to go in peace, she left the presence of Jesus with this overflowing, gushing, overwhelming, waterfall-like peace in her heart. How did that happen? What did she do? She believed in the word of his grace, she went directly to Jesus for assurance. There was nothing else that she trusted in besides Christ. She had the advantage of knowing that there was nothing good inside of her that could make Jesus love her. See, minimizing your sin is the worst way to relieve the guilt of your sin and the, 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 the discomfort of your sin. Because when you do that, you'll never go to Jesus very much. Or you'll never go to Him with very much sincerity. Jesus said the prostitute loved Him because she was forgiven much. She didn't minimize her sin. She didn't, she didn't justify it. She brought it all. She brought it all to Jesus. He forgave it all. And she loved him for this great forgiveness. But Jesus said, he who is forgiven little, loves little. When you minimize your sin, when you hide your sin, when you justify your sin, 
when you blame other people for your sin, you can only receive a little bit of forgiveness. Why would you want just a little bit of forgiveness when you can have it all? And when you live like that, when you live like this Pharisee, hey, I just need a, I just need a little help, a little grace. I'll do, the, I'll do most of the work, Jesus. You just give me a little bit. You'll always, be, you'll, you'll always feel forgiven little, and Jesus says, you'll never love him very much. You'll always love him in little ways. Brothers and sisters, don't, don't hide your sin. Don't minimize it. Bring it all out. Go under the bed where you've been stuffing it all. Take it out. Go to the closet. Go to the attic. Bring it all and lay it down at the foot of the cross. Amen? How does the gospel of justifying grace transform a person's life? Number three, the gospel of grace <coughs> produces strong marriages. The gospel of grace produces strong marriages. Go to Ephesians 5 now. Ephesians 5. And here Paul says that the the marriage is a symbol of the gospel. Verse 22, Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. The husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also the head of the church. He himself being a savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ... So also the wives ought to be to their husbands and everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave, him out, gave himself up for her. And then he further describes marriage. And when you think he's, uh, he's just talking about marriage, he tells you what he's really talking about. Verse 32, this mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Marriage is a symbol of the gospel. When God invented marriage, he patterned this institution after the relationship between Christ and the church. I remember hearing or reading John Piper say a long time ago that the best way to love your wife more is by loving her less than you love Jesus Christ. The best way to love your husband more is by loving him less than you do love Christ. On the flip side, if you want to love your spouse less than you do, if you really want to treat your spouse poorly then love your spouse more than you love Jesus Christ. All the things that the world exalts in marriages, how your spouse makes you feel, what they do for you, the money they make, how attractive they are, how how important children are to this marriage, all these things, good things, nothing sinful about those things, must be a distant second place to the importance of, of how much a marriage brings glory to the gospel. When marriages get rough, when relationships get rocky, we often worry about losing the wrong sorts of things. We worry that if the marriage doesn't survive, we might lose our reputation, we might lose our house, we might suffer financially, and most of all, we worry about how our broken marriage might affect our children. But if your mind goes to all those places first, I think I know you're, why your marriage is suffering so badly. It's because you don't care, care very much about the glory of the gospel. The biggest loss in a broken marriage are not those things. They are considerable losses to be sure, but they're not even close to the very biggest loss. The biggest loss is what you tell the world about the gospel through your broken marriage. When you give up on your marriage, you tell the world that Jesus doesn't love the church or the church doesn't love Christ. That is the biggest tragedy. That is the greatest consequence. In other words, brothers and sisters, the gospel should always be the greatest motivation to fix the problems in your marriage. And if if you don't care about the gospel, those other things, they are not strong enough to keep the marriage together. Your marriage will always feel like you're walking on a tightrope. A marriage can never be secure when lesser things than the gospel glory becomes the anchor of what keeps your marriage together. 
We love the gospel because Jesus died for our sins, but we also love it because the gospel has the greatest power to keep a marriage full of love, peace, and joy. And this is why secular marriage counselors or quasi-Christian counselors, they can, they can help a little bit, but they can never address the root of the issue if they never bring up the glory of the gospel. When the glory of the gospel is never brought up in problems in our marriage, when it's never taken seriously, marriages can never find a sure foundation. Build your marriage on the foundation of the gospel of grace. How does the gospel of justifying grace transform a person's life? It produces an extravagant love for Jesus. It gives you true and deep and lasting peace. It keeps marriages strong and healthy. So if it does all of those things, why wouldn't you want to share the gospel with other people? Is the love of Christ the greatest joy in your life? Then why wouldn't you want want others to have the same joy? You know some of your coworkers are miserable. You know plenty of people who are filled with guilt and anger and shame. Why wouldn't you want them to have the same peace that you enjoy? You have friends whose marriages are struggling. Tell them they're sinners who need to repent. Tell your friend that he needs his love, his wife, as Christ loved the church. And he can do that if he repents and trusts in the cross. Why wouldn't you want your friends to have the same kind of blessed marriage that you do? Struggling marriages for unbelievers can be the greatest opportunities for convicting spouses of their sin and convincing them of their need for the grace of the gospel. I shared this story a few times in the past. My wife and I have a a good friend who had a struggling marriage years ago. They both were not saved at the time. And so she had a Christian friend who went to my old church, and this friend told her about our counseling ministry. And so this wife, uh, our friend now, a believer now, she went in for a session, and she poured out all her problems to the marriage counselor, And the marriage counselor said to this, listen, you have to submit to your husband. And when she said that, our friend was convicted of her sin for the first time, and she repented and believed in the gospel. Was the marriage saved? No, uh, because he was an unbeliever. Uh, He basically threatened her that if she got baptized, she would leave him. She got baptized in obedience to Christ, and she left him. It didn't save the marriage, but she is the most wonderful Christian you will ever meet in your life. She goes in a room. She lights it up with the joy of Christ. Share the gospel. Share the gospel. The evidence that Paul, go back to Galatians, the evidence of Paul's conversion What was the evidence? What was the evidence of Paul's conversion? Verse 23. He who once persecuted us is now proclaiming the good news of the faith which he once tried to destroy. This bold evangelism was the fruit of how genuine his salvation was. He's saying, I'm not a false teacher. I'm proclaiming the gospel. Proof of a transformed life is a life committed to bold evangelism. Some time ago, I was talking to somebody, nobody here in our church, and he was thinking about deconstructing his faith. He was re-examining the validity of Christianity. He especially had a problem with the Apostle Paul and his writings. But he insisted he believed in the gospel of Jesus. And I said, it doesn't work that way. Because the gospel is in the Bible. The gospel is connected to the New Testament. It's all interconnected. So the Galatians were about to lose Christ, 
because they didn't believe in Paul. They thought Paul's word was his own word instead of Paul's word being Christ's word. In order to deepen your faith in the gospel, you must believe in the entire New Testament. Every part interlocks and works together. If one part falls, it all falls down like a row of dominoes. Paul knew that. He realized it wasn't good enough for the Galatians to believe that Christ's word came only through the apostles in Jerusalem. They also needed to believe that Paul's words equaled Christ's words. To assign different weights to different parts of the Bible, to doubt one part over the other, is to put your faith in danger. Brothers and sisters, receive all of God's Word in Scripture. Believe in it. Let the Gospel of grace transform your life as a result of that faith. And I love the last verse in chapter 1. This is where... This is the end goal, isn't it, for us? Our, our last days, when we die on our tombstone, don't you want them to write this? Don't you want to be able to say this on your deathbed? And they were glorifying God because of me. That's the end goal. That's what we want to be able to say at the end of our lives. Because we trusted in the gospel of grace, and because we let the gospel of grace transform us from the inside out. They were glorifying God because of me. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, each of us here, we, we have a ways to go. We have so many silly notions about the Bible. We get thrown off by red letters contrasted with black ink. We, we doubt parts of the word. We, we, we make different parts of the Bible battle each other. Like Paul was an enemy of Jesus. Like somehow the Old Testament and New Testament are sparring partners. Father, our, our lives are in disorder because our minds about the Bible are in disorder. And so we pray that every, every line, every word of Scripture, we would receive as the word of Christ and not the word of man. And let that gospel change us, we pray in Jesus' name.